Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of CKX Questions, the podcast. My name is Lee Rose, and I'm the managing director here at CKX. In our first season of CKX Questions, we're asking, how do we begin to embody the just futures we strive for? In this episode, we bring you the second half of our digital dialogue with Alexa Conradi on Leading with Love. If you haven't heard the first half, you'll notice the audio is a little airy because the episode was recorded live at the Impact Hub back in April. Alexa Conradi is an award-winning author, activist, shift disturber, and friend. Her book, Fear, Love, and Liberation in Contemporary Quebec, is a deeply personal book, reflecting on her experiences as the first president of Quebec Solidaire and president of Canada's largest feminist organization, La Fédération des Femmes du Québec. In the second half of our dialogue, Alexa speaks pointedly and poignantly about leading with love. She reflects on the inequalities and racism that are deeply and structurally present and how we can create possibilities for rest and recovery for everyone in a system. She reminds us not to individualize self-care, but first think structurally within our organizations and society about how we tackle inequalities and make political decisions within an organization about what is important. The question that kicks off this conversation comes from Alexander Dirksen, Program Director at CKX. Let's dive back in. How do we meaningfully acknowledge the element of privilege in leading with love? The ability to step back from the front lines is a luxury that we cannot all afford in our current construct. And how can we leverage this privilege to create the conditions for those most in need of the spaciousness and support to be able to work in the same way? I was, I've been thinking recently, there's an, uh, I'll get to it specifically, but I need to take a step back yeah. from that question before getting there. I've been thinking, there's a lot of people who say, either you have social justice left-oriented politics, or you have like diversity pro-women politics, and they're often opposed to one another. I don't know if they're often seen or presented as being in contradiction with one another. Mm-hmm. And over the last 30 years of activism, I have seen very few wins on social struggles at a political level that have around income inequality, around social programs that flatten the differences between us. But I've seen more gains on um, um, LGBT rights, on queer um, questions, on gender questions, and on sort of inclusion, diversity questions. I've seen more gains there and almost none when it comes to economic social justice. And so this, these structures of inequality at an economic level are gendered, they're racialized, and they're so deep. And we're not winning these struggles, like we really aren't at the moment. And so our social, our social movements that are trying to deal with all of them together, yeah. we're really struggling to be able to create possibilities under these conditions for rest and recovery for everyone in a system where everything these inequalities are already deeply deeply present so we know like for example in quebec and i'm sure the numbers are similar um black women are making 58 cents um an hour on average to a white man's dollar whereas white women are making 85 cents to that dollar. Of course, the time available for someone who's working at that lower wage will probably have to have two jobs in order to make ends meet. That person has way less opportunities to take step back 
rest. That seems like an unbelievable luxury indeed. Yeah. And so this is where I find it really important that we don't individualize this question of self-care and that we actually think in our structures of organizations, first how we how we compensate for these inequalities, but then also how we tackle them and that we don't just stay at the levels of representation, making sure that there are more voices. We have to actually change the structures. But because we've been not doing well with these struggles, sometimes we've fallen back on the easier ones around representation. And I think we need to go back to focusing on how do we change minimum wage legislation? How do we make sure that education is free? How do we make sure that these sort of deep structural questions um, make it possible to level some of the field? Do you have any examples of any you know, concrete examples of where you're seeing that shifting in a way? I, mean, I know you talk about organizational policies and, and that, but like in, in response to the question, like, is there anything that, that you've seen where someone like is creating the company to create that space or holding that space? Um, so on the rest, rest and recovery, I think we're really at the front end of that. I think maybe you have more experience with that than I, I do. I would say at the level, what's happening is, for example, there's research in community organizations and then some thoughtful practice trying to think through why is it, for example, when organizations start to hire people of color, those people of color don't stay in the organization. Mm -hmm. What are the dynamics that take place in the organization that make people leave or not want to stay or get fired? And what has, what has that got to do with deep structural racism that is probably invisible to most white people and deeply palpable to the people who are first affected? Those things, I think, are ways of addressing these inequalities of access, of possibility. I think it's also really important that um, organizations think about how to structure in their work contracts, time off, unpaid leave, but not just unpaid leave. You know, there's in public service, you can do this, pay set, get paid 75% and then take yeah. um, time off. Like, how do we structure that into it? So that there's enough renewal. Um, we could also do more making sure, I think, you know, in some jobs I had, I had, I don't think I ever attended any kind of education. No professional development, no continuing education, nothing. And how can we expect people to be innovative, renew if they're not having access to that? And so then what are the policies and how do we make sure we implement them? And it's not just sort of a blah blah that we yeah. do. Oh yeah. But no one ever has time. Yeah. Um, and those choices involve actual political decision making inside an organization Absolutely. to make it important. Yeah. So especially if you think about it in a like funding context or things like that, like are you going to justify the professional development budget? And you know, my response is well, people are our most important asset, and that's they're the they're the ones who are doing the change. And if we don't invest in people, we're not going to create the change. Yeah. See, but it's it's not easy, you know, when the when the funding application is sort of rigged against that. <laughs> you know, how do you actually like and you sort of go back to the system and like you're actually perpetuating the system that we're trying to change, right? You're going to a fund, you're going to the government, you're going to others, and it's like I'm playing this game and I'm trying, you know, it's like it just doesn't seem it doesn't resonate in that yeah. way. And I think that there's there's definitely some creative ways where some organizations are doing that, sure. but there's uh, it's not the norm no. to think about that, right? And it's it's a challenging kind of space to be. There's a, another question, um, and it ties into a question I had earlier. So as a queer Anglophone woman, coming in to lead the FFQ or the work that you're doing in Quebec with Quebec City Data, 
Like, how does that, how does it, so the question that's right here is like, how are you feeling about your work with the FFQ and the stance you took in light of the current political context in Quebec? Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about Bill 21, I'm yeah. assuming here, and the changes here, the new cap government reintroducing this. Um, and interesting to like Bouchard Taylor, the report coming out a few years ago, and then that, them coming out against us, like there's a whole hotbed of, it's in the, it's in the zeitgeist right now yeah. about this context. And your reflections coming in from the you know, grassroots as an outsider into this space, like, how do you feel about where we are right now? Um. You know, I'm really worried about not just Quebec, but you know, Ontario with Ford and then um, the new premier in Alberta. And there's there's a lot of context of populist racism mm -hmm. happening all over the country. But obviously, there's a hot point in Quebec at the moment. Um, at one level, the level of what the government's going to do, I feel quite discouraged. But I see changes happening in. The community, um, nonprofit, union world, civil society world that are really hopeful. So we'll, let's break that down yeah, a little bit. For sure. Um, so you know the the government is a majority government. It's it's it is um, on riding on populist coattails. There is a hot button issue that continues to mobilize people's passions in Quebec. Some of it has to do with the criticism of religion and the function of institutionalized religion in the history of Quebec. And I think that is difficult for people outside mm -hmm. Quebec to really get why. Um, but I get that sentiment that we need to really keep, make sure that religious um, institutions do not influence the public sphere. And there's a sensitivity about that that I think needs to be understood. At the same time, um, that particular concern has been translated into um, my mind very often, but not always, a racist um, concern about Muslims as being threatening. And how to navigate between one legitimate criticism and one an illegitimate criticism is a really difficult space. Back in the day when the FFQ took a stand, so this Women's Federation took a stand against the ban of religious um, gear, including a headscarf, um, we were in an absolute minority position and almost no civil society organizations outside of the Muslim world really took a stand. Yeah. So the Main Street, it was the Anglophones in Montreal, um, religious organizations, and us. And you probably also had feminists on arguing on the other side. Absolutely, well, right? there Sorry. were very organized feminists on the other side who accused us, as I said earlier, of betraying feminist ideals um, because they read the headscarf as being um, a form of gender depression and we were allowing for it to take over. So that, um, so positions of opposition, but we were very much alone and the unions didn't say much. The community organizations didn't feel it was their business, and um, and they didn't see, they didn't read how it was being used to serve racist populism. They really weren't analyzing that. Since then, there have been really important work done on systemic racism by community activists all across the province. There have been, there's been work done by Muslim activists to do more education. The FFQ has continued to um, stick 
to its principles and actually deepen that understanding. And the FFQ isn't um, just a board, it's a mm -hmm. membership organization yeah. of deep grassroots. Quebec Solidaire had held debates internally and adopted a more anti-racist perspective or critical of racism and how it's being used to serve or how this type of bill serves an agenda, racist agenda. And that, so there's progress inside the social movements and civil society organizations on this question and are able to piece out the differences between what is secularism and what is um, fear of the other yeah. and what are women's rights and, and women's equality questions, how to address them. But it's taking years to get there. But nevertheless, the progress in the last five years at that level is tremendous and makes me feel very hopeful for the future, even though I think the bill is going to get adopted. I think um, the, the notion of using love in response to fear in that space, and I think what's happening in Quebec, what's happening in other spaces, there's a lot of fear mongering and othering that happens. Leaders, people see an advantage politically, strategically, operationally to position people in, a, in, in opposition or you know, be like, you know, they're different than us in, in that space. And I think of um, recently the example in, in New Zealand with, after the bombing there and the prime minister wearing a headscarf. And, modeling this, this empathy and this compassion and, and love for a community that was traumatized in that space. And like, that is not the, that's not the norm in terms of a political response to do that. It's, it's, it's thoughts and prayers. It's, you know, very scripted words to make sure that we're not offending our base and those things. But that, that, that role of fear and that thing, like how, do, how does love counter the fear thing? And I think that's one example in New Zealand, but like that, the beauty of that and the power of love to shift that conversation. I'm like, how does that, like, where does that go now? Like, how do you yeah. keep doing that? You know, it was really interesting how, you know, if you think way back to the 9-11 attacks, the answer was one of anger, war, threat. Mm -hmm. When the shooter in Norway shot, right-wing shooter, the answer in Norway was, no, we're not changing who we are. We are going to stick with this, we're not going to go down the path of right-wing nationalism. We're just not going to do it. It was an answer of love. No, we we, we are um, justice-seeking people. We will continue on that path, and we will not go down the war path. Same thing in, in New Zealand. Recently, I saw a Quebec City MNA say, speaking up in the, in the National Assembly to say, I'm going to put a bit of love out there for the women who are on the front end of this um, are being attacked right now um, under the secularism bill, um, Bill 21. I'm just gonna like these are women who are from here. They are they belong to us. We belong to them. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna send some love out there to them. And I thought that's really important politically that we find ways to um, counter this othering. And um, I'm not always sure about the strategy of wearing the headscarf as a sign of um, solidarity because it is a polysemic symbol and not we don't want to always take on the, all of what it might mean mm -hmm. but it, they're being racialized through um, the wearing of the headscarf and I would want them to um, yeah I want them to know that I'm with them so it, I understand the strategy in New Zealand and it's the right kind we just need to keep finding ways to break down those barriers and to not be bystanders. Yeah. Bystanders are what, what makes everything really dangerous. And you talked earlier about the, these little incremental shifts in how things are happening. And I, 
you know, I'm, I wonder, are you hopeful that there'll be enough of those incremental shifts to counter the larger things that are sort of at play right now? You know, this is where the, the, it's not just um, the fear-mongering on the right um, that with racist bent to it that is generating fear. We have this eco-anxiety. Mm -hmm. And as politicians play into one set of fears while ignoring the reality of the other, I have a feeling we're in for very unstable times. And I don't want to make it sound like I believe in fairy tales. Yeah. I think that all across the West, we are seeing things are happening and we don't know where they're going to end up. Like we've got certain balls rolling. And I think when there's, when, when there's a racist in the United States, there's a racist, sexist class backlash. And that wall, who knows where it's going to go. It's happening in Brazil. It's happening in Turkey. It's happening in parts of Europe with the rise of very strong, powerful right-wing movements. Canada's not exempt from it. Quebec is sometimes sort of an, an, an exemplary figure in all of what's not great on some of these questions, but I'm equally worried about what can happen in other parts of the country. And, um, but I, I don't, this is where we need to have this long-term belief system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Because I think we are going to go through worse before it's going to get better. And I'm really terrified about that personally. Um, you know, just the climate questions are terrifying. And to know that government, people with power and influence are not responsive enough to it, I think allows for scapegoating. Yeah. I think it feeds into it. The economic insecurities that globalization and digitalization and changes in the, like we're going through a new industrial revolution, those things create tremendous insecurity. And instead of people finding ways to bring us together to, to make some deep shifts in like was done in the post-war era. Um, there are parties mobilizing, scapegoating, and the fear of the other. I think there's some real potential. And you saw a bit of that with Quebec Solidaire, trying to um, kind of create a new discourse of possibility yeah. and hope of, and I'm hoping that in the Canadian political scene in the run-up to the elections, between Greens and the NDP, for example, we'll see some of that spirit of bringing together these issues without marginalizing one, but developing a kind of common purpose through an anti-colonial perspective, one that looks after the environment and social justice. That will make a difference, I'm sure, but I think we're in for rough times ahead. Coming back, you know, we started sort of with your individual time and the opportunity to do this, this reflection and went really big in, in terms of the system mm -hmm. uh, and the complexities of politics and, and social change work, but um, just reflecting back on your own personal experience, you know, whether it's leading the FFQ or uh, the work with Quebec Study Line, or even in just writing this book, what have you learned in terms of, you know, in, in putting together a book and some of the thoughts? And, and maybe we could end with something you're hopeful. What are you hopeful for, Alexa? Mm -hmm. um, my trust in people, once again, is something I keep, I, I have faith in people. I, I've met people who I have deep disagreements with but I've had the opportunity to have like, deep exchanges with and see where those fears, the othering comes from and to like, take the time to work through that. And I think that's something we all can do. So, you know, in our families, shit happens. Um, <laughs> or in um, 
you know, our broader networks of not just our, our chosen people. Yeah. Um, and I think there's work we can do there, those of us who are in positions to, to think that through, and there's hope there, not to be right. I think there's something about not trying to be right, but just trying to understand where other people are coming from. And there's a lot of hope there. I see a lot of hope in the discussions that are happening here with what you're doing, with what other organizations are doing that are not asking us to be separate. Like we are, we, we need to be, we are learning from Indigenous um, traditional knowledge. And we have to do it in a way that doesn't just take. And so we have to actually work on what our society does, right? The laws and the systems and the structures. But one of the things that there's to me a lot of hope, it lies in the fact that we're learning how interdependent we are. And that we can't just go, okay, we're gonna look after only this subject and we're not gonna see the bigger picture. I think there's more of us trying to figure out, okay, if we're gonna take this, any given subject as the entry point, but seeing it as connected to others and that we can build together along those lines. I think that's happening more than ever. There's an awareness that's happening. Those are all really hopeful moments. I think we're seeing all across also the West, um, this um, more engagement with the environmental crisis we're in. And from young people, we're seeing that. In Canada, um, the decolonizing process is underway, not fast enough, mm -hmm. not good enough. Um, from power structures, definitely problematic, but there's an engagement to know more, to learn, to unlearn. And those are all really important, exciting moments. And I, as a feminist activist, I'm finding that in, it, structures are very slow to change, but the conversation, the understanding of sexual violence has changed tremendously yeah. since um, Been Raped Ever Reported, Sean Gameshi affair. Um, we have made progress, and that is, we are all making that happen. Yeah. Right? This Absolutely. is the power of decentralized organizing with a level of sharing of knowledge, a, a form of interdependence that's unplanned but thoughtful. Yeah. It's happening. We're making it happen. And um, I see with my own children how articulate they are about questions that I knew nothing about when I was their age. So I'm hopeful these young ones are. You know, pushing us in the back, those of us who are a bit older, and that's like great. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think your your point about interdependence sort of comes full circle to where we started in terms of being connected and all that work. And, uh, I just want to say thank you uh, so much, love and gratitude for this conversation and for uh, the time, effort, passion, energy you've put into not only the book but just sharing your ideas and helping to hold space for others. In this important time, in this challenging time, and um, yeah. so thank you so much, Alexa, for spending the better part of an hour with us uh, today here on CKX Questions, um, and look forward to continuing the conversation online and wherever we might see again. CKX Questions is a podcast from CKX Community Knowledge Exchange. Please see the show notes for links to Alexa's book, as well as additional resources on Leading with Love that are posted to the CKX Questions platforms. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Join us on Twitter with the hashtag CKXQuestions, or send us a note at questions at ckx.org.